leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards in stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The convergence of technology and life sciences, changing consumer behavior, and increasing pricing pressures on drug and device makers are forcing these companies to rethink business models and how they derive value from their products, according to a new EY Progressions 2018 report. The report argues that life sciences companies will no longer be able to rely exclusively on product-centric innovations, which face diminishing returns as Health systems wrestle with cost constraints. We spoke to Pamela Spence, EY Global Life Sciences industry leader, about the report. What a growing trend in collaborations between technology and healthcare companies may say about where the industry is heading and why the future of life sciences companies may be as health technology companies. Pamela, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure, Danny. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about how technology is changing the life sciences industry, the convergence of technology and life sciences, and how companies will need to change business models if they're going to capture value in what they do. Let's start with definitions. For the purposes of your report, when you speak of life sciences company, what do you include in that? So life sciences companies, I think, range from biotechnology, pharmaceuticals, and, and medical devices. Historically, they have been the producers of products, devices, or medicines. Um, and some of some companies more recently have started to expand into services. You talk about life science companies becoming health technology companies in the future. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think that that's a very strong trend. I'm very excited to see it. Um, I've spent most of my life in um, pharmaceuticals or, or high-end tech. Um, I think that the whole essence of our report really focuses around using technology advancement to unlock the power of data, um, the power that data has to really drive innovation towards a much more outcomes-driven uh, a value-based industry with high degrees of personalization. Um, and I do think that to really unleash the power of data that our life sciences companies, as, as we know them today, really do need to partner, acquire skills much more traditionally suited to 
some of the technology companies with all those uh, very capable data scientists. And we see many agile partnerships underway at the moment. Indeed, in, in our report, we talk about, um, we analyze a number of uh, mergers, alliances, and partnerships that have been done in, in recent years. And it's very clear to see that there's a blurring of skill sets, which I find personally really inspiring, between technology companies and life sciences companies. And I, I think the conundrum I am sort of thinking about is how far will that go? How far will life sciences companies become technology companies? And how far will technology companies become health companies? But irrespective of where each company might have started from, health technology, combining health skills, be it payer, provider, or life sciences companies with the technology skills to really sort and manage and analyze in intelligent ways data, as I say, to deliver those uh, outcomes uh, with higher degrees of precision, I, I think we'll see many more of. So health technology, uh, I think, becomes m even more important as we go forward. There are several developments that are that are driving these changes. Some within the industry, some outside of the industry. I thought we could just run through a few of those. From a technology point of view, what are the technology drivers of this? I think some of the emergence of artificial intelligence is hugely exciting, um, specifically for life sciences companies. You know, R&D and the productivity challenges that, that so many companies face in terms of R&D, actually using AI to really... Uh, produce, analyze, manage, design synthetic pathways. I mean, that's a huge area. Um, I think we have, you know, some companies going into services at the services end, you see the algorithms to really understand behaviors now and to really help patients, consumers, and I use that phrase interchangeably, patients and consumers um, adhere to their care, prescribed their medicines, so I think that, again, the algorithms that um, intelligent analytics, computational power becomes even more powerful to sort through a whole chunk of data. I think um, depending um, on where you play in the life sciences space, some of the device companies now, the large-scale training of using virtual technologies, um, in, in, to use and implement devices, I think is really exciting. I think 3D printing, of course, you can now print some devices, especially if they go inside the body, very specifically to individuals. So, uh, and I think that, that's all hugely exciting. I think an area that I see as new and emerging is some of this smart dust from nanotechnology that actually can measure your body's response to some of the medicines that you take. So all of these technologies are being invented and being adopted and used at a pace, and they are only increasing in both their sophistication and their application. At the other end, one of the drivers of this is the emergence of what you call the super consumer. What do you mean by that term, super consumer? Yeah, sure. I mean, history tells us or precedent tells us that large-scale change occurs when it's consumer-driven. And I'm a firm believer that industry 
um, can create an infrastructure and an environment for change, but it's the end user uh, who will drive that change. And we see that in so many industries in the past um, and so many large-scale changes in the past. So I do believe, and the report describes, as access to information becomes much more frequent, we as patients and consumers feel much more informed, engaged, and ultimately empowered to start to want to make some choices for ourselves, to become more demanding, to take more of an interest, because we suddenly have access to this data. You know, the democratization and access to data, um, I'm hugely excited about as a consumer myself. Um, but that, I think, will really start to drive on mass large-scale change. That's what I mean by super consumers. And, and it's not only just the end patient, you know, those consumers, be they payers, consumers, be they providers. So all of this demand, I think, will start to change the way the whole industry operates. One of the peculiarities of the healthcare arena is that consumers are often not the payers. How, how does this disconnect between who consumes the goods and services and who pays for it affects how quickly or how thoroughly we'll see the new world you describe as life sciences 4.0? I think that's very interesting, Danny. I, I, um, I think that we will see a confluence of who pays um, and who actually is driving the pay strings. I think consumers will become, patients become more demanding in terms of what their payer gives them. Again, access to information will actually help them and or help companies actually choose one payer over another. So I think that's going to be a very interesting dynamic. I think co-pay, of course, is going to increase in some segments of the population. Uh, and of course, globally, I think we'll have private paying systems uh, become much more commonplace, but but irrespective of you know the, the 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 patient or the consumer, the payers themselves with greater access to information, I think will feel more empowered and enabled to also make different decisions. So I see this um, access to data analyzed in intelligent ways can can benefit all, uh, and I see there's going to be much more transparency between. Um, what my payer allows me to have and what I actually want. You say products are no longer going to be the central driver of value. If not products, what will drive value in the future for life sciences companies? I think products and their applications uh, will will drive value. Uh, um, what, what we say in the report is products alone won't necessarily be enough. But it depends what business model the organization decides to go down. Um, and there is an encouragement in the report that looks at four different types of business model. One we call Breakthrough Innovator, which looks at where, where companies will just focus on R&D for new molecular entities or devices. Um, we suspect that will be very product-focused, um, less services-focused, but that product will come with recommendations for high degrees of personalization and thus efficacy in either cadres of patient populations or individual patients themselves. 
Other company uh, business models we describe as disease managers, which is much more heavily dependent on services with a bit of product. Then you have the uh, efficient producers, where that is very focused on um, a particular manufacturer's product. I think you have to breed brand loyalty, um, and how do you do that with services? And then the fourth business model that we describe in our report is uh, what we are describing as a lifestyle manager. Um, that, I think, will be potentially more attractive to new entrants into the industry rather than the life sciences companies themselves. And, and I delineate between disease manager and lifestyle manager. Disease manager is in, disease, in a disease state and lifestyle manager in a pre-disease or identifiable disease state. So I think that um, I'm saying products themselves will not necessarily be enough. I would also challenge as we go forward in the future that data, as in how you use the product, will actually become equally valuable because um, one can deliver with that data um, a very high degree of accuracy well, I hope one will be able to deliver with a high degree of accuracy uh, a very efficient outcome. So that, that's certainly not the case today. Not all medicines and care pathways work in any individual person. Um, with more data analyzed in intelligent ways, I think we'll be able to get there. How do you see notions of innovation and value changing in this new world with regard to what drug and device makers do? Sure. I think, um, you know, with each of the business models that, um, that I described, I think companies need to really understand, you know, what new capabilities might they employ to really get that high degree of personalization, that degree of data literacy, um, and that degree of customer engagement that will really help them um, enhance their value. But, but all of that, though, needs to be really personalized to the end user. Uh, and we describe um, different types of capabilities um, for the breakthrough innovator, the disease manager, the efficient producer, and the lifestyle manager. Uh, but all of them require capabilities in terms of customer engagement, personalization, and, and data literacy. They're just different. But those three capabilities, I think will become, well, I'm certain, I'll be, I believe, will become even more important as we go forward. And they are not currently as good as they could be um, today with the expectation of technology advancing at the pace in which it's going. And I would also link back to, and that is why I think we see so many companies looking to become health technology companies because, of course, health technology companies will be able to really deliver um, better against customer engagement, personalization, um, and um, you know, have a higher degree of data literacy. In the new world you describe, it seems like these companies are going to have to rely more heavily on collaborations and collaborations that create value differently than before. What's that going to do to a drug company's willingness to invest in long-term, high-cost drug development, and, and how will they be able to recoup their investment? Are they just going to be 
looking at sharing a smaller piece of a of a pie? Well, I think that we're going to see um, much more agile partnerships. Um, I think we're going to see, um, you know, partnerships with non-traditional entrants to deliver skills that the life sciences company hasn't got themselves. Um, and I and I think that there needs to be a recognition that you're not going to own all the value um, if indeed you want to enhance your productivity quotient. So I think we're going to see more of that. But actually, this whole concept of the sharing economy and the concepts of when I talk about connecting, combining, and sharing data, those are the three elements to really unlock the power that data really can give us. You know, the connecting bit, you connect different data silos in your own organization with others. You can combine, obviously, analyze in intelligent ways. But how do you share back some of that value with somebody else for the greater good? I think that we will see... Um, companies starting to really think much more about value creation and, um, for not necessarily themselves but for others because that in turn will feed back value to them. And I do see a trend of how companies are thinking about measuring value in the longer term rather than the shorter term. But, of course, that brings challenges to one's own capital investor base because that has traditionally been driven, managed, measured on shorter-term returns. So I, I think that we will see different partnerships and value being shared, but I think there's a different mindset that needs to be undertaken. I, I do think, though, especially with the advances in artificial intelligence uh, or augmented intelligence and some of the really exciting innovations that we see going on in some of these AI, very specific R&D companies, one would hope that the R&D life cycle can become much shorter and therefore the productivity can go up and therefore the cost comes down. Um, you know, one of the um, things I've been talking to a lot with uh, one of the CEOs of one of these AI companies is you know, 90% of drugs fail in clinical trials because the actual target in the body is misunderstood at the outset. So therefore, a lot of money is spent designing a molecule to uh, you know, interact with that target. And of course, if you don't spot the right target at the outset, then you will fail. And it's widely accepted that that's one of the principal reasons of so many drug trials don't deliver, sadly, the outcomes that they're designed to deliver. So I think AI plus partnerships in agile ways could hugely increase the success rate and, and I would hope and expect increases productivity and reduces the cost. But I don't expect life sciences companies themselves to become AI experts overnight and I would challenge whether it's efficient use of their capital to really be that. Um, you know, potentially, you know, that's where the partnerships come in and they might partner with one organization for one particular, um, you know, therapy area or particular indication and they might partner with somebody else for something else. Are there any particular collaborations that have been formed that you think point the way forward for, for the industry? 
I think there's so many great examples that are that are emerging, and certainly we cite some of them in the report. Um, I think it would be unfair to single out any particular uh, organization or entity, but I'm hugely encouraged by the number and volume of, or, or size and volume of these partnerships that I see. But but I, I do believe one of the biggest hurdles for these um, tech life sciences partnerships is one of culture. Um, traditionally, life sciences companies have made decisions relatively slowly, uh, quite cautiously, and have been very understandably fearful of regulation. Whereas tech companies typically, and of course I'm generalizing, make decisions very fast, um, are less cautious, have a, a fail-fast mentality uh, at a, a different extreme than, than other industries. And of course, they haven't needed to be as fearful of regulation in the past. So, you know, one sees these two very different cultures um, needing to come together, though, to really drive the opportunity that we talk about in our report. And I think the cultural challenges are going to be equally as challenging as the um, commercial challenges, the, 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 you know, the value exchange and, and who gets rewarded for what that we just talked about. Um, and you know, and ultimately, ultimately, I think that's something that my my encouragement would be that life sciences executives really do start thinking through. Uh, what's at risk for companies that resist this change? Um, well, we we do an analysis of um, the pace of change of the Fortune 500, um, and indeed, we show some statistics in the in the report that. You know, it's well understood that the Fortune 500 is changing, and it's changing with people coming in, adopting technology, um, and delivering value to the end user, either differentiating by a great experience, uh, a great personalized experience. Um, so, you know, that's really where we drive these capabilities for success in the future for life sciences companies has to be really thinking through you know, how are you differentiating an experience and how are you really delivering high degrees of personalization. Those two aspects are typical characteristics of companies that um, are displacing others in the Fortune 500. And of course, depending on whether you look at an exponential change or whether you look at a linear change, um, you know, we would argue that in the next five years, you know, up to half to two-thirds of the Fortune 500 companies could potentially share. Pamela Spence, Global Life Sciences Leader for EY. Pamela, thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Danny. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. 
Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.